This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi there, and welcome or welcome back to Self-Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I started Self-Work about four and a half years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be in therapy but be interested in another psychologist's point of view, to those of you who've just been diagnosed with something and you've got lots of questions that need answers, and to those of you who might say, I'd never darken the door of a therapist, but you're just curious enough and perhaps despairing enough to listen to a podcast like Self Work. I welcome any and all of you. Today we're talking about enmeshment. It sometimes can be confused with the term codependency, and you might use those terms, or some might, interchangeably. We'll describe enmeshment in both families and couples or between a parent and child. And I'll offer seven steps to slowly and carefully begin to gain more of your independence and sense of self. We'll focus on both families that are enmeshed, and I'll pull out a family systems theory I used in my dissertation years ago, that was a long time ago, that has now been revised and updated. It's interesting to see where your own family of origin might fit into their categories. Just how healthy was your family when it came to building both a sense of closeness, but also individuality? There are many families that do one or the other, but healthy does both. And then there's parent-child enmeshment, and that can be a truly tricky thing to grow away from. I know I've been there. And in fact, the blog post I wrote about this a couple of years ago at least is one of my most downloaded. Our listener emails from someone who was struck by one of the assignments or the what to do about it in a past episode. She tried it and it worked. She wanted me to know about it. Always delighted to hear that. So sit back. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Let's relax and talk about how well families support love and caring and safety while also promoting each member to develop their own skills and beliefs and their own life. How are enmeshment and codependency different? You'll see that some people think they're the same, but are they? First, for me, I use codependency as more of a term used for couples, partners, maybe even friends. And I tend to agree with Sharon Martin, who's a fellow New Harbinger author, who states here, and I'm quoting her, codependency is a type of enmeshment. Codependency isn't simply an over-reliance on another person. It's an enmeshment, meaning that your identity is intertwined with your partner's. In a codependent relationship, your focus is on the other person so much so that your needs, goals, and interests are suppressed and ignored. You may be an independent person in that you're completely capable of earning a living, paying the bills, and taking care of the children. Hard work, dependability, and caretaking are common traits among codependents, but you have an unhealthy need to be needed that keeps you dependent on someone else to make you feel worthy and lovable. Enmeshment, on the other hand, is used more in reference to either whole families or a parent and child. Let's first talk about enmeshed families. Families are often discussed as on a spectrum as far as how well they promote safety and caring and love as well as individuality, and families have different structures. They're explained by what's called 
family systems theories. The theory I know best, which is the Beavers family model, first began using the general terms of centripetal families, where the energy of the family goes toward each other, almost like an implosion, versus centrifugal families, like centrifugal force, where the energy explodes out. You can already see that in meshed families, where the boundaries between family members don't really exist, everyone knows everybody else's business basically lie more in the centripetal direction. Think of an amoeba. But now the theory has become a little more specific and includes five different family structures. It's really interesting to read if you want to go analyze your own family, and I'll include a link in the show notes to the Psychology Today article that gives all five of those family structures. It goes from healthiest to most unhealthy. The family in the middle of the spectrum from chaotic to healthy is the rule-bound family. And here's a quote again from the Psychology Today article. So this is in the rule-bound family. Family participants abide by unquestioned conformity to oughts and shoulds that they have all adopted as their code of family conduct. But here is the essential point. The rules of the system take precedence over anyone in it. What family members actually think and feel is sacrificed for what they ought to think and feel. Rules regulate behavior at the expense of spontaneity and the authentic experiences of individual family members. One loses the connection with one's own emotional life, which must be repressed for the good of all. So that's what enmeshed families are. They're rule-bound families. You innately understand that your individuality isn't as important as being a part of this family. And actually, you're very protective of that. But let's now talk about enmeshed parents with children. It could be a mom. It could be a dad. But the child feels, because they were led to feel, as if it's your job, because you were given that job by the parent, to be there for them, to focus on pleasing them, to try to make them happy and never really achieving that, because guess what? You can't. They don't know how to be happy adults themselves. And just like in enmeshed families, you overshare. You might be very successful professionally, live on your own, etc., or you might not be. In fact, financial dependence may be part of the picture as well, which makes enmeshment even more difficult. Let's play the recording of the listener question from last week that sparked this post for just a second. Hi, Dr. Margaret. I love your podcast and I love your voice. You have a really nice voice. I have enmeshed parents and I'm basically 32 years old and I've never had a real job. I'm a student, but I've never really had a real job and never really been out on my own. And that kind of terrifies me. But as I look back on my past, I realized that my parents have basically made me feel like the world is like a scary place and that I couldn't make it on my own. They've been grooming me like that for years. And now I'm 32. Um, I basically take care of them, not financially, but emotionally. um, They don't really have a lot of friends. And so I don't really have a lot of friends either. And for some reason, it just doesn't feel right. I feel like I haven't started my life and it's starting to feel really lonely and I'm starting to feel like I have a lot of regrets about not um, doing a lot of things when I was younger and pretty much just missing out on all of my 20s. I can't really find anything on this topic on the internet and I was wondering if you could um, help me lay out some things that will help me to gain independence and get away from my narcissistic and codependent parents. Thank you. 
You can see that her financial dependence is part of her enmeshment with her family, and it does truly make it very difficult. But before we go on, let's hear from BetterHelp, self-work sponsor for this episode. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of self-work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone, and I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away, and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast, Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then I learned about better help in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. Trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. That's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to selfwork. And if selfwork is helping you, Maybe BetterHelp is your next step. One of the reasons I know this dynamic well is that I had it intensely with my own mom, which I've talked about here on Self Work. I remember my aunt asking me one time, do you have to tell your mom everything? And at the time, I thought it was kind of rude. But I took my mom with me to experience the parts of my life I thought she'd enjoy when it wasn't even appropriate for me to do so. I didn't even see that that was weird. Like, I'm embarrassed to admit, I brought her to a class in grad school. Now, grad school, I was in my 30s. I'd actually figured out the dynamics by then, but she was longingly talking about it, and I didn't figure out soon enough what was going on in my own heart and mind. It was like I owed it to her. She didn't do it out of maliciousness. Some parents do because they have an agenda of their own. She just wanted to be close to me. She'd never been particularly close to her own mother. Let's talk about some other examples, other than me, from my practice. That's about parent-child enmeshment. I worked with a man one time that had never married, and the only really close relationship that he had was with his dad. He talked to him about every decision, and he was a man in his early 40s. He never played golf with anyone without including his dad. He always tried to please him and felt as if he never could quite do that, even though they were close. He wouldn't consider, for example, taking a job that would require a move until he started working with me, and he was offered a job that he'd always wanted to have. He finally found independence. That's enmeshment. 
I had someone else in my practice feel something quite similar. She was dating a new guy, had been dating him for several months, and he asked her politely if she could come back early from her Christmas break after spending over a week at home with her mom so that they could spend a little free time together. She said, no, of course not. I always spend Christmas break with my mom. As she explained it to me, she was laughing and said, can you believe he asked? And I kind of looked at her and said, well, let's talk about that. And she caught herself, realizing for the first time that that wasn't rudeness on his part. That was enmeshment with her mom. Once your eyes are open, it's hard not to see the dynamic for what it is. But it can be tricky because on the surface and even to others, it can look like healthy love. You may even hear from friends, I wish my mom were that into what I was doing. But there's a price that you're paying. You're stuck in the role of confidant. And if you're a true child, you're pulled into a pseudo-adult relationship far too early. And guess what happens when your parent helps you to make every decision? You end not trusting your own mind and your own decisions, and you don't grow up emotionally. And actually, it's not all that great for the enmeshed parent either. They may never establish healthier ways of getting their needs met or making the relationship with their partner or spouse a place for confidence and trust. Or they may not get into much-needed therapy because you're their therapist. So as always, let's talk about what you can do about it. First, you may have to realize, as a therapist once told me, you'll never get permission. I will say, however, that both of the people I mentioned before in our work together did talk with their enmeshed parent about their feelings. The young woman a little more than the man. But even he said, you know, Dad, I've got to get on with my own life. And his dad said, of course you do. The woman's mom actually read a book on enmeshment, and she got it. Those changes are wonderful if they can happen, but they're not typical in my experience. Of course, I see people whose lives are skewed more in a painful direction. So perhaps, hopefully, that's more typical than what I see as a therapist. Just remember, you're never likely to get permission from that enmeshed parent to move away. Before going any further, I need to talk about how enmeshment can also be used for abuse, a partner not allowing you to have your own life, creating a situation where you're dependent on them and isolated from others, where they know your every waking move, where your very safety or the safety of your children can be at stake, when the punishment for you doing something on your own is swift, whether the abuse is physical, emotional, or sexual. This situation has to be handled very carefully. So the next steps are ones that you can follow, but first you've got to figure out a safety plan before you begin the separation. And I'll include a link to how that safety plan might work in the show notes. But now let's talk about less dangerous situations. Here's the first in those seven steps. Realize the overt and covert rules that you are following. You are doing things out of habit without really seeing or understanding where the habits come from. You'll say to yourself, we must always go to Thanksgiving at my mom's when you really want to host yourself. Or, I have to check with dad before I sign this contract. And your dad isn't a lawyer or someone with expertise in that field. And you're not anywhere near the age of 18. It's just the understanding, the expectation, and the rule. So write down those rules. Number two, realize the beliefs associated with those rules. Then look at that consequent belief to the rule, or you can 
do it the other way around. Your beliefs form your rules, but I tend to believe that identifying your rules is easier than identifying the belief. So start with the easiest first. So let's go back to the rules in step one. The belief for the Thanksgiving example could be, mom must always stay in control and be the center of the family. Or, being more independent or establishing my own rituals is the same as abandoning my mom. The second belief would be, I'm not capable of making good decisions about money. Or, I can't keep myself and my family safe without help. Hopefully you can hear how these beliefs can be very damaging to your emotional maturity and keep you stuck, or as we say, infantilized. Because since you're being treated like a child, you can feel like one, and you never grow up. In Perfectly Hidden Depression, I talk a lot about changing your rules and your beliefs. So if this is a little confusing, and for those of you who might have the book, it's the third step in the treatment process. I go into it a lot more in depth, and maybe that will help you. It's really important to do, because those rules and the beliefs that are correlated with them can keep you paralyzed. The third step is to acknowledge what you're afraid of. You may be accused of abandonment, withdrawal. You may be guilted or shamed. Your parent may turn to being passive-aggressive or they up the ante. This can happen with an enmeshed family as well as you try to grow into more independence. Your parent or your family may not have a healthy reaction to your beginning to change. Dependent on their own level of emotional health, they could act out or talk about feelings of abandonment. They can withdraw from you. They can punish you. This is especially true if you're financially independent. You want your freedom? Fine. Then go live on your own and see how you feel then. They can shame you. I did nothing to deserve this. All I've done is try to love you. Or all of that can be more covertly played out. You have to be ready to expect what could happen and come up with ways of knowing how you're going to deal with it. Because, unfortunately, not all enmeshed families or parents that are enmeshed with their children are going to respond positively. Here's number four. Understand and face your own fears of independence, your own self-doubt. Whether or not your self-doubt came only from the enmeshment, or if you've had a part in creating chaos in your own life, you can have fears yourself. What if I blank, blank, blank? and mount quite the case for staying enmeshed. Now, it might not be time. Maybe you need to take becoming more of your own person, your own individual, more slowly. And that's okay, but don't hide from your fears. You've got to get them out and look at them and accept them and work with them. This was really evident to me when my mom withdrew almost completely from all of us, and I was aware that Even though I had said I wanted more independence from her, I missed some of the support and the interest. She was extremely interested in anything that went on in my life. I didn't realize how much I had counted on that for my own self-worth. And I had to learn to be more confident all by myself. Number five is write out the boundaries as you want them to be. What I mean by that is, let's go back to the real examples. Thanksgiving. What should the boundary be? One year you go to your parents, the next year they come to your house. What's your expectation? What's your boundary? The man who always checked with his father before making a purchase, maybe he'd say, well, I'm going to work my way up slowly, and my boundary will be, I'll make small decisions on my own, but then when it comes to something I think my dad really knows about, I'll ask him. That's appropriate. That's a boundary. 
Think about and journal about what you'd like the relationship with your family or your parent to look like in three months, then six months, then a year, five years. What boundaries do you need to establish to get there? Kind of what steps do you take in moving away from some of their ownership of your own life? Number six is start small. You start creating those boundaries, but you start small. I love to give people this particular example. Let's say when you want to pick up your phone and text your parent or call them and ask them something. First, you stop, and then you ask yourself, what am I thinking I'll get from that parent that I can't give myself? I'm going to say that again. What am I thinking that I'll get from that parent that I can't give myself and answer the question And this is the last one. Then figure out a way to offer whatever that is to yourself or from a friend. Maybe it's reassurance. Maybe it's a pat on the back. Maybe you're afraid for their safety for no rational reason. How can you soothe yourself? Maybe you're lonely and looking for contact. Who else can you reach out to? I've had college kids tell me they're having a terrible experience this was pre-COVID, that there was no one to hang out with. But then I find out they're constantly texting their parent. I find out the same thing when someone's not getting over divorce. They're not developing new relationships and they're staying enmeshed with their ex. So you've got to figure out what do I get from that parent that I feel like I can't give myself and learn how to give it to yourself or learn how to ask a more appropriate friend for whatever that is. It's hard to be so vague. It's kind of hard to talk about this because it's a huge concept So hopefully the specific examples do help. Again, writing it all down, let's go through the seven steps again. Realize the overt and covert rules that you are following and write them down. Then write down the beliefs associated with those rules. Acknowledge what you're afraid of. What do you think might happen if you begin to move away and develop more of your own life? So you can sort of expect it. You might be wrong, happily, but what can you expect? Then number four is to understand and face your own fears of independence, your own self-doubt. You may not be very emotionally mature, and you're going to have to learn how to be. That's okay. Just face those fears. Number five is write out the boundaries as you want them to be. How do you want your life to intermingle with your parents or your families? What feels like a good, healthy, appropriate boundary, and what doesn't? Number six is to start small. Start creating those boundaries in little ways. And again, this is when I introduce the idea, what am I thinking I'll get from that parent that I can't give myself? And answer that question. And number seven, figure out a way to offer that very thing to yourself or get it from a friend. It could be all kinds of things, but you're often ignoring the very person that could give it to you that's standing right in front of you or you already know because you're so dependent on your parent. As you move through these small steps or others you might think of, or you and your own therapist might come up with, then you can move on to larger moves, to firing yourself from the job of making a parent happy or thinking that's even possible, and still hopefully maintain a relationship with them that's much better for both of you. Here's our listener email. Hey, I'm 22 years old. 
I particularly was struck by a recent podcast where you suggested that for deep depression, you should try something you've never done before, whether it's big or small. You used the personal example of wearing brightly colored shoes. That's right. I always wanted to wake up early on a weekend instead of sleeping till afternoon and go to a workout class. So when I had a breakdown a few days ago and I was feeling even suicidal, I went to a yoga class instead of checking into a hospital. I was super out of my element and felt self-conscious. But soon I felt calm when I realized everyone was focusing on themselves, not my ability to perform. The class was way harder than any yoga class I've done before, and I actually sweated. I went home afterwards and had a decent day. Now I'm going to try to do an exercise class two to three times a week and see how I feel. Thanks for the advice. I finally took it. I want to comment on this because I did not talk about this with deep depression, actually. You have to be very careful about any kind of suicidality. I'm glad this helped this young woman because she was able to distract herself from her darker thoughts and actually feel engaged, and that is important. But be careful, because if she had had a bad experience, then those darker thoughts might have been right there with her. Again, I do believe if you're proactive and you try to do things that maybe you've never done or you've always wanted to do, that you're convincing yourself that your life can go forward. You just have to put some energy into it. I'm delighted that that episode led you to go to yoga class. And I'm honored to be a part of any healing journey that any of you have because of self-work. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm involved in a seminar called Ordinary Women Doing Extraordinary Things Tomorrow, actually. Sorry for the late notice, but the link to it is https colon slash slash www.eventbrite.com slash ordinary women doing extraordinary things series. And I will have this in the show notes so that maybe if you're free on Saturday morning, there's some great women speaking. I'm one of about five and the tickets are free. So if you're interested, look in the show notes because that will be there. It will also be taped, and so you can look at it afterward. Thank you all for your ratings and reviews on Amazon. I would love to have some more ratings, because when people think about buying the book, A Perfectly Hidden Depression, they do look to see how many ratings and reviews has it gotten, and how many of them have been good. So I'm bowled away by how many I've already gotten, but you can never have enough, it would seem. (laughs) Again, that book is Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Away from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. And it's all about loosening control and learning how to express painful emotions and to connect with them. And thanks for all the podcast reviews. That means so much to me. And again, the same is true. The more, the better. (laughs) You can join me at drmarketrutherford.com and subscribe there. And you'll get a weekly newsletter with things like this seminar series that I'm involved in. You'll get advance notice of that or anything else that I'm doing that might interest you. You'll get my weekly blog post as well as this episode. So it's a really easy way of keeping in touch with me. You could email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretbrotherford.com. I've got a wonderful Facebook closed group that's internationally attended, mostly women, but they're men too. So I'd love to have you there at facebook.com slash groups slash selfwork. Thank you for being here so very much. Please take great care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.